This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once more to the program. I hope your week has been fruitful and happy and that your practice has been regularly blissful. Well, cast your mind back to the last part of last week's program. Do you remember how we spoke about how a relatively minor negative action can, through repetition, have a much worse karmic effect than a strong negative action committed only once or twice? And for example, we compared killing with gossip, the name that hisses. Yes, the poem is describing the nasty effects of gossip, and perhaps it gives some indication how the habit of gossip can be more destructive than a single killing. And it's worse today than any time in history, for with the internet and social media, gossip can itself become a killer. How many young people have committed suicide because others have spread gossip and slander about them on the web? Is anybody who posts gossip about anyone else leading to that person's death not a killer? This is really not the place to have that kind of discussion, but I would say that the karma for the gossiper must be pretty awful. The discussion arose out of our examination of a text called The Eight Verses of Mind Training by the Tibetan master Langri Tampa, and the text reads, Determined to obtain the greatest possible benefit for all sentient beings who are more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, I shall hold them most dear at all times. When in the company of others... I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, and from the depths of my heart hold others dear and supreme. Vigilant, the moment a delusion appears in my mind, endangering myself and others, I shall confront and avert it without delay. Whenever I see beings that are wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rare ones dear, as if I had found a precious treasure. When, out of en envy, Others mistreat me with abuse, insults or the like. I shall accept defeat and offer the victory to others. When somebody whom I have benefited and in whom I have great hopes gives me terrible harm, I shall regard that person as my holy guru. In short, both directly and indirectly, I offer every happiness and benefit to all my mothers. I shall secretly take upon myself all their harmful actions and suffering. Undefiled by the stains of the superstitions of the eight worldly concerns, May I, by perceiving all phenomena as illusory, be released from the bondage of attachment. At the end of the program last week, we were discussing the third verse. Vigilant, the moment a delusion appears in my mind, endangering myself and others, I shall confront and avert it without delay. If you were with us, you may remember we went a little into what is meant by delusion and why delusions endanger us. We spoke about the six primary delusions, attachment, aversion, ignorance, pride, doubt and wrong view, 
and the twenty secondary delusions, although there are in fact a multitude of delusions. The function of these delusions is to lead us to suffering, which they do very well. And it's sometimes said in the teachings that the only good thing about delusions is that they can be eliminated. When we give in to the delusions or ignore them, they easily take over and then it becomes all too easy to commit negative actions that will result in negative karma and much suffering in the future. And that's why the verse says that we should be so mindful that as soon as a delusion arises, we can immediately identify it and apply an antidote so that it no longer poses a threat to our future or present well-being. You might recall the famous story about Geshe ben Gungyal, who was invited to a family's house one day for lunch. While the family was out preparing the meal, Geshe ben, who'd run out of tea in his hermitage, found himself putting his hand into a container of tea to take some with him when he went home. When he understood what he was doing, he yelled, Thief! Thief! There's a thief in the house! Of course, all the members of the family came running into the room to see what the commotion was and found Geshe Ben berating himself and threatening to cut off his hand if it ever behaved like that again. So we have to be a bit like that. As soon as we notice some negativity arising in the mind, it would be a good idea to catch and deal with it immediately. But now before we continue, let's think about our motivation for being together today. Or why are you participating in the program today? I hope it's not just to while away a little time or to gain some temporary mundane advantage. For instance, thinking that if someone catches you listening in, they would think you are a good spiritual type of person. This kind of motivation is very small and shallow, and it would be much better for our purpose to be more profound and beneficial. The most beneficial is, as we've often said before, a heartfelt wish that our participation in the program will become a cause for the freedom from suffering, not only for ourselves, but for all others as well. As His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, pointed out in his commentary that we quoted, quoted last week, we're all the same in wanting happiness and not desiring even the slightest suffering. We can't point to one being that wants suffering and wants to avoid happiness. The only difference between ourselves and others in this regard is that we are only one, but the others are many. So then, how can we only seek our own well-being and not be concerned with the well-being of all others who are also suffering just as we are. Therefore, with that in mind, let's cultivate the motivation that causes us to participate today not only for our own sake, but for the sake of all suffering beings everywhere. Thank you. Now returning to the third verse of the text, His Holiness says that it rarely gets to the heart of what could be called the essence of the practice of the Buddha Dharma. He says in one of his commentaries, When we talk about Dharma in the context of Buddha's teachings, we are talking about Nirvana or freedom from suffering. Freedom from suffering, Nirvana or cessation is the true Dharma. There are many levels of cessation. For example, restraint from killing or murder could be a form of dharma. But this cannot be called Buddhist dharma specifically because restraint from killing is something that even someone who is non-religious can adopt as a result of following the law. 
The essence of the Dharma in the Buddhist tradition is that state of freedom from suffering and defilements that lie at the root of suffering. This verse addresses how to combat those defilements or afflictive emotions and thoughts. One could say that for a Buddhist practitioner, the real enemy is this enemy within, these mental and emotional defilements. It is these emotional and mental afflictions that give rise to pain and suffering. The real task of a Buddha Dharma practitioner is to defeat this inner enemy. Since applying antidotes to these mental and emotional defilements lies at the heart of the Dharma practice as and is in some sense its foundation, the third verse suggests it is very important to cultivate mindfulness right from the beginning. Otherwise, if you let negative emotions and thoughts arise inside you without any sense of restraint, without any mindfulness of their negativity, then in a sense you are giving them free reign. They can then develop to the point where there is simply no way to counter them. However, if you develop mindfulness of their negativity, then when they occur, you'll be able to stamp them out as soon as they arise. You will not give them the opportunity or the space to develop into full-blown negative emotional thoughts. The way in which this third verse suggests we apply an antidote is, I think, at the level of the manifested and felt experience of emotion. Instead of getting at the root of the emotion in general, what is being suggested is the application of antidotes that are appropriate to specific negative emotions and thoughts. His Holiness goes on to say that we can use love and compassion as an antidote to anger and ugliness or impurity of an object to counteract attachment for it. We quoted him on this in some depth in last week's program. Now he goes on to say, To counter one's arrogance or pride, you need to reflect upon shortcomings in you that can give rise to a sense of humility. For example, you can think about all the things in the world about which you are completely ignorant. Now this particular teaching, he had someone translating his speech into sign language for deaf people in his, in his audience. He uses this person as an example. Take the sign language interpreter here in front of me, he says. When I look at her and see the complex gestures with which she performs the translation, I haven't a clue what's going on, and to see that is quite a humbling experience. From my own personal experience, whenever I have a little tingling sense of pride, I think of computers. It really calms me down. And he probably said those last couple of sentences with his characteristic chuckle. In his commentary on this verse, Dr. Alex Burzen says we have to be very careful of our motivation when we counter the delusions. He asks how seriously we take these disturbing emotions. How much do we actually examine ourselves in different situations, he asks, when we're alone, when we're with people, and so on. Do I really take it seriously that these are my enemies, these are the things that cause me all my problems, and how willing are we to actually apply opponent forces? And if we're not very willing, then looking at the disadvantages, as they are described extensively in all these texts, try to make the decision that I'm going to try to apply opponent forces. Otherwise it's hopeless. Maybe we will apply them when we're sitting in meditation, but what about real life? And even if we do apply various opponent forces, it's important to examine why do I apply them? What's my motivation for applying them? Is it because I want to be good? That very often can be a motivation among Western people. We want to be good. We want to be good practitioners, good Buddhists. 
We want to please the teacher. We want to please the Buddhas and so on for a pat on the head or whatever. It's as Geshe Ngawan Dage used to say, you get a pat on the head and then what? Wag our tails? And then what? Or is it the case that we're doing it out of a sense of duty? So we have to examine why we're applying these opponents. Is it just out of a force of habit? It's in the law of Dharma. It's written, so I have to do this. Or are we really motivated by seeing that this really is my enemy? This is what causes me all my suffering and prevents me from helping others and causes me actually to hurt others. That's the important point. Because as I say, even if we do start to apply opponents, we could be doing it for quite a non-dharmic reason. As Togmed Zangpo said, we can be engaged externally in what looks like dharma activities, but internally actually it's not a dharma activity at all. He goes on to say that it goes back to the Four Noble Truths. How seriously do we take them? And not just in theory, but personally. I want to overcome my anger so that you will like me. That's not a very dharmic reason. I'll overcome my attachment to you so that you won't run away and you'll stay with me. Dr. Burzen says that's a very common mistaken motivation when we get further into the Dharma. So it's important to think about our real reason for trying to transform the disturbing emotions. It's interesting that Dr. Burzen uses this translation in his commentary. Whatever I'm doing, may I check the flow of my mind. And the moment that conceptions or disturbing emotions arise, since they debilitate myself and others, may I confront and avert them with forceful means. He's quite emphatic that we have to use forceful means. He says, that's how we work for others, not just the external forms, but by keeping a check on what's going on in our minds as we are helping. And is it with love and compassion? Or is it attachment? Or is it a pride? Or what is it? And Langri Tampa said, here in the verse, when these disturbing emotions come up, we have to confront them, which means face them and avert them, that turn them back with forceful means. And Shantideva also spoke very strongly about how we have to smash these disturbing emotions and be very forceful with them and merciless. Dr. Burzen then quotes several verses from Shantideva and other authors and concludes by saying, So when Langri Tampa says we are going to use forceful means, this is referring to things like what Shantideva described so well, and Nagarjuna did as well, to overcome attachment and desire for the body of others, to see them as skeletons, to see what's inside their stomachs, what's inside their bowels. All these really gory verses that Shantideva has. Put food in their mouth and it turns into vomit and diarrhea and this sort of thing. These are very forceful, heavy, strong means. And these are the type of means that are referred to here. Dr. Burzen then repeats the antidotes to attachment, anger and arrogance that we've already covered with his, in His Holiness's commentary and concludes, These are the forceful means that are referred to here and those are things that we try first. Following on, we can meditate on voidness or emptiness in what Dr. Burzen calls a two-punch method. Now once again I'm struck by the difference between this typically Tibetan approach and the much more gentle, one could say organic approach of the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. It's not that Thich Nhat Hanh does not recognize the power of the disturbing emotions. After all, one of his books on confronting the delusions is called Taming the Tiger Within. 
But Thich Nhat Hanh does not see the engagement as a battle, much more as a transformation. In one of his teachings he says, Our joy, our peace, our happiness depends very much on our practice of recognizing and transforming our habit energies. There are positive habit energies that we have to cultivate. There are negative habit energies that we have to recognize, embrace and transform. Now notice the difference in language here. Where Dr. Burzen is confronting and diverting with forceful means, Thich Nhat Hanh recognizes, embraces and transforms. He continues, The energy with which we do these things is mindfulness. Mindfulness is a kind of energy that helps us to be aware of what is going on. Therefore, when the habit energy shows itself, we know right away. Hello, my little habit energy. I know you're there. I will take good care of you. In recognizing it as it is, you are in control of the situation. You don't have to fight it. In fact, the Buddha does not recommend that you fight it, because that habit energy is you, and you should not fight against yourself. You have to generate the energy of mindfulness, which is also you, and that positive energy will do the work of recognizing and embracing. Every time you embrace your habit energy, you can help it to transform a little bit. The habit energy is a kind of seed within your consciousness, and when it becomes a source of energy, you have to recognize it. You have to bring your mindfulness into the present moment, and you just embrace that negative energy. Hello, my negative habit energy. I know you're there. I'm here for you. After maybe one or two or three minutes, that energy will go back into the form of a seed in order to re-manifest itself later on. You have to be very alert. Every time a negative energy is embraced by the energy of mindfulness, it will lose a little bit of its strength as it returns as a seed to the lower level of consciousness. The same thing is true for all other mental formations your fear, your anguish, your anxiety and your despair. They exist in us in the form of seeds, and every time one of the seeds is watered, it becomes a zone of energy in the upper level of our consciousness. If you don't know how to take care of it, it will cause damage. It will push us to do or to say things that will damage us and damage the people we love. Therefore, generating the energy of mindfulness, to recognize it, to embrace it, to take care of it, is the practice. And the practice should be done in a very tender, non-violent way. There should be no fighting, because when you fight, you create damage within yourself. The Buddha's practice is based on the insight of non-duality. You are love, you are mindfulness, but you are also that habit, habit energy within you. To meditate does not mean to transform yourself into a battlefield, the right fighting the wrong, the positive fighting the negative. That's not Buddhist. That's why, based on the insight of non-duality, the practice should be non-violent. Mindfulness embracing anger is like a mother embracing her child, big sister embracing younger sister. The embrace always brings a positive effect. You can bring relief and you can cause the negative energy to lose some of its strength just by embracing it. Now, to be quite honest, although I'm ordained in the Tibetan tradition, I much prefer Thich Nhat Hanh's non-confrontational approach. Whereas Dr. Burzen's emphasis seems to be on the forceful means, and his teaching the words are always in bold, Thich Nhat Hanh 
stresses the mindfulness aspect of the process. Notice he says that it is the work of the mindfulness to embrace and transform, generating the energy of mindfulness to recognize it, to embrace it, to take care of it, is the practice, he says. Now please do not get me wrong. I'm not criticizing the approach that Dr. Burson and others distill from Shantideva and other authors to comment on this verse. It obviously works for some. My mind, however, seems more geared to follow in the footsteps of Thich Nhat Hanh, and I guess each of us has to look into our own internal world and find what best works for us. The thing is to deal effectively with the negative emotions in whatever way we can. But now let's leave the third verse behind and continue with the fourth. It reads, Whenever I see beings that are wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rare ones dear as if I'd found a precious treasure. And when we come across beings that are wicked in nature and overtaken with negativities such as anger and aggression, what do we do? Don't we automatically want to get away as fast as possible? For instance, as you're walking in town, you see directly ahead of you a drunkard lurching around, swearing profanely and swinging wildly at imaginary foes. What would you do? Well, quite naturally, we would want to avoid him, even hurrying across to the other side of the street. We may see him as dirty and unruly and think he shouldn't be allowed on the streets. Maybe we even wish the police would come and take him away. Now, if that's the way we think, let's pause and question that attitude. Is it increasing or decreasing our loving kindness for others? Can you see that there is, in fact, very little loving kindness and quite a bit of self-centeredness in this reaction? Langri Tampa's verse tells us to regard such a person as if he was a precious treasure. Why? What's going on here? His Holiness explains in his commentary, This verse refers to the special case of relating to people who are socially marginalized, perhaps because of their behavior, their appearance, their destitution, or on account of some illness. Whoever practices bodhicitta must take special care of these people, as if on meeting them you found a real treasure. Instead of feeling repulsed, a true practitioner of these altruistic principles should engage and take on the challenge of relating. In fact, the way we interact with people of this kind could give a great impetus to our spiritual practice. His Holiness quotes the example of Christians like Mother Teresa who deliberately work in caring and humanitarian professions dealing with marginalized people. He says, When I meet members of Buddhist centers in various parts of the world, I often point out to them that it's not sufficient for a Buddhist center simply to have programs of teaching or meditation. There are, of course, very impressive Buddhist centers and some retreat centers where the Western monks have been trained so well that they are capable of playing the clarinet in the traditional Tibetan way. But I also emphasize to them the need to bring the social and caring dimension into their program of activities, so that the principles presented in the Buddhist teachings can make a contribution to society. He recommends that Buddhists and Buddhist centers become involved with hospice work, caring for the chronically ill, that's people like people with AIDS, and prisons. It is, of course, deeply unfortunate when such people, particularly prisoners, feel rejected by society, as holiness states. Not only is it deeply painful for them, but also from a broader point of view, it is a loss for society. 
We're not providing the opportunity for these people to make a constructive social contribution when they actually have the potential to do so. I therefore think it is important for society as a whole not to reject such individuals, but to embrace them and acknowledge the potential contribution they can make. In this way, they will feel they have a place in society and will begin to think that they might perhaps have something to offer. The point that is being made here is that when others provoke you, perhaps for no reason or unjustly, instead of reacting in a negative way, as a true practitioner of altruism, you should be able to be tolerant towards them. You should remain unperturbed by such treatment. As His Holiness says, working with such people can be a big boost for our spiritual progress. Not only will we overcome the dislike brought out for such people by our conditioning, but we may make a big difference in their lives, and that could make us very happy. Ajahn Brahm, the great Australian monk, tells a true story from a prison that he visits close to his monastery. He had been teaching to the prisoners basically that the way to treat a difficult people was with ongoing kindness. He used the example of a demon who grew bigger and bigger and more ugly, smelly and horrid the more people treated him with anger. When people started being kind and helpful to the demon, he became smaller and smaller and more and more tame until he eventually faded away. Now one of the prisoners didn't believe him. He told Ajahn Brahm that in prison if you were kind, the other prisoners would just take advantage of you. Ajahn Brahm asked him who was the worst person in the prison. The whole group of prisoners he was with all agreed. The chief officer, they said. My job is to serve him tea and coffee every day, said the disbelieving prisoner. I hate that guy. He's always really nasty. And he told Ajahn Brahm how one prisoner's wife had come to visit him from a long way away. She was hardly ever able to come to the remote prison because she didn't have a car and there was no public transport. However, she had managed to get a lift to see him. But when the chief officer saw her arrive, he sent her husband to work at a far part of the prison where the PA system didn't reach. That meant when his wife came, he couldn't hear the announcement that he had a visitor. Eventually, when someone found him and told him, visiting hours were over. Tough luck, smirked the chief officer. The disbelieving prisoner said, that's why in prison he was called the dog. He's just so difficult, he never respects us, he never says anything to us, he always puts us down and treats us like dirt. Ajahn Brahm told him to be kind to him, embrace him with his heart. He said, the way you can do that is every time you serve him tea or coffee, try and put some love and care into that tea and coffee. Try making it the most beautiful, delicious cup of coffee you possibly can make. So the prisoner tried it. After a week, Ajahn Brahm asked him how it was going, but the prisoner said it was a complete waste of time. The chief officer still ignored him, treating him as if he was lower than a cockroach. Ajahn Brahm told the prisoner to keep on trying, and after a couple of months it worked. The prisoner had a breakthrough. The chief officer actually grunted at him. Wow, this is exciting. That's a crack in the damn wall, said Ajahn Brahm. The prisoner carried on making the best cup of coffee or tea with cream and biscuits he could, and one or two weeks later the chief officer turned to him and said thank you. When the prisoners told Ajahn Brahm this, they said, You don't realize just how the prison farm works. That has gone to every prison in the state. That this chief officer could say thank you to a prisoner was unbelievable.
though it just took a lot of patience and a lot of kindness. And with that, we must say farewell as our time is up. Thanks for joining the program today. Please tune in again next week. Also, please dedicate any positive potential from the program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.